What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. ESPN's new sportsbook, ESPN Bet, is set to make its long-awaited debut on Tuesday, November 14th. Now, as a reminder, in August, ESPN signed a licensing deal with Penn Entertainment to rebrand Barstool Sportsbook as ESPN Bet. They agreed to pay ESPN $1.5 billion in cash over 10 years, and they granted the worldwide leader in sports $500 million in equity warrants as part of the deal. And Penn stock popped 10% overnight on the news, as CEO Jay Snowden touted ESPN's ability to help Penn lower its customer acquisition costs. But is ESPN's brand strong enough to really make that big of a difference in the sportsbook space? Think about it this way. There's companies like FanDuel and DraftKings who have spent tens of billions of dollars, not millions, not single-digit billions, tens of billions of dollars over the last decade, signing up millions of users in the United States. Michael Rubin and Fanatics have also poached top executives from all over the industry for their newly launched sportsbook. And Penn's first go-around with Barstool Sports certainly left a sour taste in some investors' mouth. Let's get into some of the details, though. When Penn Entertainment paid $163 million for a 36% stake in Barstool Sports in 2020, many people, including myself, to be fair, thought it was a good idea. Barstool was doing about $100 million in annual revenue at the time. They had diversified income streams, including seven to eight figures of revenue from audio ads, commerce, digital ads, events, and more. And partnering with a new age sports-centric media company like Barstool seemed like a smart strategy to reduce hefty customer acquisition costs. And things got off to a hot start, too. Barstool's audience helped Penn drive signups in several newly legalized sports betting states. The company's stock shot up 1,500%, 1,500% from its 2020 lows. Barstool doubled its annual revenue to $200 million over the following two to three years. And Penn even later agreed to pay $388 million for the remaining 64% of Barstool that it didn't already own. Now, to give you guys a little bit of context, people who don't live, eat, and breathe the sports betting space, sports betting is notoriously expensive to acquire customers. It's just a really expensive market. DraftKings has actually said in the past that their average customer acquisition cost, I think, was somewhere between like $350 to $400. Now, obviously, they're making a multiple of that from a lifetime value standpoint, but it's really expensive upfront to acquire customers. So being able to acquire customers at a cheaper rate through media leverage can be extremely valuable. And again, to give you a little bit of a recap here, Penn did two deals with Barstool. In 2020, they paid $163 million for a 36% stake. Then they came back in 2023, so about three years later, they paid $388 million for a 64% stake, the remaining 64% of the business that they didn't own. So now they own total control of Barstool 100% for about $550 million, we'll call it. And Barstool was much bigger than people realized at the time. They were doing about $200 million in annual revenue. They were profitable. They had about 500 employees. They had 200 million social media followers across 100 plus shows, everything from podcasts, again, live events, pay-per-view events, et cetera. And the Barstool Sportsbook was live in 15 states towards the middle of 2023. But just a few months after that second deal was signed, giving Penn full control over Barstool Sports, Penn Entertainment agreed to sell Barstool Sports back to its founder, Dave Portnoy, for literally just $1. And the company booked a $633 million loss on the deal, which was actually $82 million more than it had paid for Barstool. Now, why would Penn do that? They had just spent over $550 million on Barstool Sports. 
including $388 million just a few months prior to assume the majority control of the entire business. And they were now willing to walk away from that deal without getting anything else in return and giving the business back to Portnoy for $1? Well, let's look at it this way. The truth is, the plan wasn't working. Penn went out and they publicly said that Barstool's edgy content upset regulators, making it difficult for them to gain entry into new sports betting states. But the reality is that Penn had peaked with no more than 5% of online market share in any of its 17 states, putting them in fifth place and well behind competitors like DraftKings, FanDuel, BetMGM, and others. So that's where ESPN came in. Bob Iger and Disney finally decided it was time to enter the sports betting market. And Penn convinced its shareholders it was worth taking another stab at the licensing strategy via a deal with a bigger partner like ESPN. Now, look, if we want to zoom out and look at these two deals, Penn's deal with Barstool versus Penn's deal with ESPN, they're very similar at face value. You're essentially leveraging the media and licensing the content to be able to go drive customer acquisition costs lower and get a higher lifetime value out of your signups to the sports book. Get it? I think most people understand that. But the difference between the two strategies is that ESPN is just bigger, right? They're just a bigger party to partner with than Barstool. And I'll give you a couple examples of how. Number one, unique monthly website visitors. When this deal was announced a few months ago, Barstool was doing, probably doing somewhere similar today, but at the time they were doing 8 million unique monthly website visitors. ESPN at the time, similar today, is doing 117 million monthly website visitors. So again, 8 million for Barstool, 117 monthly unique visitors on their website for ESPN. Obviously a huge difference there. But ESPN also has way better distribution capabilities than anyone else in sports today. Let's start with linear reach. ESPN is in 72 and a half million homes. Now that's obviously down from 100 million a decade ago, but 72.5 million homes in the United States alone that ESPN is in is tremendous reach for a partner like Penn. Number two, ESPN Plus subscribers. It's well-documented that ESPN is trying to move the people that they've lost on the cable side to their streaming service, ESPN Plus. They've signed up 26 million subscribers over the last few years. They gained 800,000 subscribers during Q4. 26 million, pretty solid. Now, there's a caveat to all of this that a lot of these subscribers seem to be coming from a bundled deal that includes Hulu and Disney Plus, but still, ESPN Plus has 26 million subscribers. Number three, social media followers. They have over 150 million social media followers just on their main accounts, just on main ESPN accounts. So we're not talking about sub accounts like ESPN F1 or anything like that, just the main ESPN accounts. They have nearly 50 million followers on Twitter or X. They have 44 and a half million followers on TikTok, 26 million on Instagram, 22 million on Facebook, 10.8 million on YouTube. That's 151.8 million followers today just for their main accounts. ESPN also recently became the most followed brand on all of TikTok, not just within sports, the most followed brand on all of TikTok. Again, this doesn't even include things like SportsCenter accounts. On SportsCenter accounts, they have another 100 million followers, right? So hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of followers. Now, obviously there's a little bit of an overlap, but you guys get the point. The reach is unprecedented when it comes to sports. ESPN also has a huge fantasy football database, and fantasy and other sports as well. And ESPN Bet is immediately going to be live on Tuesday in 17 states. That includes Arizona, Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, 
and West Virginia. And that's because of Penn's existing licenses. They're literally just rebranding the Barstool Sportsbook as ESPN Bet. So maybe they're going to make some changes down the road, but the look and feel of it's going to be very similar, albeit different logos and stuff like that. So this is the talk of the town. I mean, ESPN for years has said that they're not going to get into sports betting because of their ties to Disney. They're obviously the biggest counterparty in the space, and everyone was waiting to see what they would do. So you could imagine why everyone is super excited about this. But I'm not convinced that this deal is as good as everyone is making it out to be. Now, I went on CNBC a few months ago, three months ago, to talk about this ESPN Penn deal for ESPN Bet. And the words that I used to describe this deal for both companies was Hail Mary. I said, this is a Hail Mary for both companies, Penn and ESPN. And I still believe that. I think it's a Hail Mary for Penn because things didn't work out with Barstool. So they cut their losses by booking a $633 million loss, gave the business back to Dave Portnoy for quite literally $1, although there are some stipulations with that. They signed a $2 billion licensing deal with a bigger player in ESPN. And now they're going to try what's probably one last time to grab a meaningful amount of market share in the sports betting market. That's not to say it's a bad idea. I mean, they really didn't have another option. And partnering with ESPN offers them the best chance at competing with industry leaders like DraftKings and FanDuel. For context, FanDuel and DraftKings alone own 73% of the U.S. sports betting market. If we just want to talk about U.S. online sports betting, there's a report that came out last month that said FanDuel owned 39.3% and DraftKings owned 34.1%. 73% of the market they own. That's absolutely incredible for two companies to own that much of the market. And it makes it much more difficult for someone like ESPN Bet via Penn to come in and take a meaningful amount of market share. If we want to add in casino gaming, DraftKings actually recently became the leader overall. They own 31% of the U.S. online gambling market, which includes sports betting and casino gaming. FanDuel is number two at 30%. BetMGM is number three at 16%. Caesars is number four at 6%. And BetRivers is number five at 5%. Again, Penn is nowhere to be found in these rankings because they are a very small player and it ultimately didn't work out with Barstool. So that's why I think it's a Hail Mary for Penn. They, they tried this out with Barstool. They it didn't work. Now they convince everyone else that it may work with ESPN. We'll see if that happens. That's why I called it a Hail Mary. But this is also a Hail Mary for Disney and ESPN. Think about it this way. ESPN is the worldwide leader in sports. They generate $16 billion in annual revenue and $2.9 billion in annual profit. That $2.9 billion in annual profit is more than their entire, more than Disney's entire entertainment division combined. We're talking about other TV channels, streaming services, movies, everything else. ESPN generates more profit in a year than all of those other services combined. So it's still a cash cow for Disney, no matter how much people want to say that ESPN has died. It's simply not dead yet. But there is a huge caveat to all this because the underlying economics for ESPN's business have changed a lot over the last decade. ESPN has lost nearly 30 million cable subscribers over the last decade. Like I said, they went from 100 million homes in the US to 72 million homes. Their streaming service, ESPN Plus, lost subscribers for the first time ever earlier this year. And no one's really watching it. I mean, if you look at the, the streaming numbers in the app versus all the competitors, even non-competitors, things like Tubi and all those other streaming services, ESPN has watched less than them, give or take a month, depending on what's on TV. But the service itself is not very popular based purely on minutes stream. So they can talk about how they're going to move everyone over there in 2025 or 2026 or whatever it ends up being. But the service itself is not super popular today. 
And like I said, this makes ESPN's underlying economics, the financials of the business, how they make money via cable affiliate fees. It makes the business much less desirable going forward. This is why you've seen Disney CEO Bob Iger publicly courting a buyer for ESPN. I mean, it's no secret. Why do you think that they released their financials for the first time ever? It wasn't to go out and pay the leagues more money because that's what the leagues are saying, right? If you're the NBA or the NFL when their deal eventually comes up or whoever it is, and you see that ESPN is making $2.9 billion in annual profit, you're like, yeah, you could pay me a little bit more on the rights fees. No, they would never do that. That's why you would not release the financials. But they released the financials because, in my opinion at least, I think they want to sell the business. There's been reports that they've been shopping the business. There's been reports that they've been looking for minority investors from leagues like the NBA or NFL, potentially someone like Verizon or someone else like that. There's a lot of noise around this right now. And where there's smoke, there's typically fire. So don't get me wrong. A $2 billion licensing deal is good, especially in the regard that Penn is in charge of managing the business, the technology, they're in charge of running it, the marketing, everything else. Penn's in charge of the business, ESPN bet. They're just simply licensing the ESPN name. So getting $2 billion for that is pretty damn good. But my argument is that $150 million per year in additional revenue, because keep in mind, Penn is paying $1.5 billion in cash, but that's over 10 years. And then the other $500 million of the $2 billion is in equity warrants. So really, ESPN is getting $150 million per year in additional revenue from this deal. And the reason why that's actually not amazing is because it only increases ESPN's annual revenue by less than 1% per year, right? $150 million on $16 billion in annual revenue. It's less than 1% increase per year on a top line basis. And when you add in the fact that ESPN sat back and watched, they literally sat back and watched. PASPO was repealed in 2018, paving the way for individual states to legalize sports betting. In 2018, that was. ESPN was ready. ESPN was ready. They should have been ready. And ESPN sat back and they watched other companies build multi-billion dollar sports betting businesses. People like DraftKings, people like FanDuel, BetMGM even did it, right? These are multi-billion dollar businesses that they have built since 2018. And now, 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 five years later, ESPN wants to get involved. And not only are they getting involved late, they don't own the business, right? They're getting a little bit of equity. $500 million in equity warrants is certainly something. I don't want to make that seem like it's small. But in the grand scheme of things, when there's people out there building multi-billion dollar businesses, and you are the worldwide leader in sports, or so you call yourself, and you make billions of dollars every single year in cable fees, and you're literally printing cash and subsidizing streaming services for Disney, the fact that they sat back and watched everyone else go out and acquire millions of customers and didn't do anything themselves, they have left billions of dollars in enterprise value on the table by not owning this themselves. By not owning this themselves, they have left billions of dollars in enterprise value on the table. I think that's a huge mistake. I've been talking about this for several years at this point. Now they're going in to go get their beak wet with sports betting. They're using it as pure licensing play. It's a little bit of money. It's not going to change anything for the business long term. And I don't even think it's going to make a material impact on someone's potential offer to buy the business. So no, I don't think Penn is going to reach their goal of 20% of the US sports betting market by 2027. I'm not making that number up. That's what they've said. They want to own 20% of the business in the United States from a sports betting perspective by 2027. So within the next four years here, they think that their partnership with ESPN is essentially going to bring them from like low single digit percentages, effectively zero to 20% of the market. And that would mean that they're stealing share from the biggest players in the game, FanDuel, DraftKings, BetMGM, et cetera. The reason I think that is because Penn Entertainment 
hasn't shown an ability to build a good enough product. I mean, anyone that used the Barstool Sportsbook will vouch for that. They're superior products on the market. A lot of the competitors are using similar technology in the back end. And I think consumers have gotten smart enough to a point where you can't just throw a name brand in front of them and expect them to go sign up and enjoy it. They want better products, right? And that's part of the reason why, A, FanDuel and DraftKings have built a huge head start. They've obviously been doing this for a number of years. They have spent billions and billions and billions of dollars on marketing to go out and acquire these customers. People are locked in with their bank accounts, with their credits, with their funds, everything else in those businesses. It's really hard for a competitor to come in and steal market share from someone else as these states are already open, right? There's a bunch of states that are already open. So for ESPN to go into these big states and try to steal customers, it's going to be really difficult to do. But B, there's other, like what we'll call DFS-based companies like Prize Picks, Underdog, and Sleeper, who at least have like a unique offering, right? And these companies are creating a wedge to go backdoor into sports betting. So if you're a Prize Picks or your Underdog or your Sleeper, you've now built this unique offering where people like to play your games. People like the more or less offerings. People like the best ball offerings. People like the games that they built, the products that they built over the last several years. And that's why they've acquired millions of customers. And now what these companies are going to do, or at least tried to do, in my opinion, is they're going to backdoor sports betting. They're going to say, we started with daily fantasy sports. We got a bunch of customers. They love our products. Now we're going to go innovate on the sports betting side. And we're going to go reverse engineer this thing. We're going to backdoor all of you guys. And that's part of the reason why companies like FanDuel and DraftKings have been lobbying so hard against them lobbying against prize picks and underdog and sleeper and other companies like that because they know that that's exactly what they're going to go do. And it's a legit competitor at this point because they have so many people logging into their app every single day and placing bets. Now, look, maybe I'll be wrong on this. It's still too early to deem anything a failure in my mind. Roughly 50% of the United States doesn't even have access to mobile sports betting yet. And I would certainly be happy to change my mind. But Penn's first go around with Barstool ended up being a total dud. And simply rerunning the same playbook with a bigger player doesn't guarantee success, in my opinion. We'll see what happens, though. I'll make sure to keep you guys updated as things progress and more numbers come out showing the success or potential failure of this business in the long run. That's it for today, though, guys. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, all I do is I ask that you share it with one or two of your friends. Help me help you by making this podcast bigger. Other than that, I hope everyone has an amazing week and we'll talk on Wednesday.